Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. As you heard, Georgia is among some states holding primaries tomorrow. Now statewide, Georgia voters will determine, barring runoffs, the primary opponents for November. Meanwhile, a look at the early voting numbers is quite interesting. We'll break down the numbers with Atlanta-based demographer and campaign strategist Fred Hicks. And then we'll venture far, far, far from politics with a look at this year's MomoCon. It's back. If you're going, Rose, I have no idea what MomoCon is all about. Well, keep listening. That's what we're here for. Those conversations are all ahead. But first this, as mentioned, yes, tomorrow's the day. Georgia voters head to the polls. WAB's newsroom has a look at some key contests. First up, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is on the Republican primary ballot, hoping to secure his party's nomination for another term in office. As we hear from Mill Moffitt, Raffensperger's primary opponents have disparaged him using well-worn and debunked allegations of widespread fraud, yes, in the 2020 election. At a recent Atlanta Press Club debate, former probate judge and county election superintendent T.J. Hudson questioned whether Brad Raffensperger should have been elected in the first place. He's always throwing out that he has business experience. He has an engineering degree. He doesn't have election experience. I'm the only candidate that has election experience. David Bell Isle, a former mayor of Alpharetta, says he wants big changes if he's elected. He said he'd replace the state's electronic voting machines with hand-marked paper ballots. He also wants to let judges rule on legal challenges before an election can be certified. All these are steps as the next secretary of state that I will take to make sure that not only do we have secure elections, but we can win back the trust that Brad Raffensperger lost. But the power of the Secretary of State's office has been diluted thanks to a new law passed by the GOP-controlled Georgia legislature following the 2020 election. Former President Donald Trump's preferred candidate in the race, Congressman Jody Heiss, says the diminished role of the Secretary of State is a direct rebuke of the incumbent. It is solely 100 percent on the shoulders of Brad Raffensperger. The onslaught of allegations from his own party have left Raffensperger playing defense. Jody Heiss has been running around Georgia for the last 18 months lying about our election process. That's what destroys confidence. At the end of the day, we had an election where we verified it and investigated every single allegation. Although he denounces election misinformation from opponents, Raffensperger continues to list as his top priority a ban on non-citizen voting, something that's already illegal and rarely, if ever, happens in Georgia. Emil Moffitt, WABE News. Let's head over to the newly redrawn 7th Congressional District, which is proving to be a tense race, especially on the Democratic side, which features two incumbents. Emily Wu Pearson has that story. Three women are running for the newly drawn 7th Congressional District on the Democratic side. Incumbent Carolyn Bordeaux, U.S. Representative Lucy McBath, who currently represents the 6th District, and State Representative Donna McLeod. Under the new maps, McBath's district is heavily Republican. She's now challenging Bordeaux for the strongly Democratic 7th. The two have clashed over McBath's decision to run for a district already represented by a Democrat. Bordeaux's campaign ads say McBath is abandoning her district to the GOP and the National Rifle Association by not trying to win the 6th again. McBath, whose son was shot and killed in 2012, responded saying Bordeaux's attacks were an insult to her and every person who has worked to end gun violence. Emily Wu Pearson, WABE News. Let's talk education. Six candidates are vying to become state school superintendent. Two Republicans and four Democrats will face off tomorrow. Martha Dalton has that story. 
On the GOP side, incumbent Richard Woods will face former state superintendent John Barge. This is the third time the two men will go up against each other. In 2010, Barge won the primary and went on to become superintendent. He ran for governor four years later, and Woods won the superintendency, a role he's held for the last eight years. He also defeated Barge in the 2018 primary. In a campaign video, Barge says he's determined to get his former job back. I will finish the work that I started during my first term in office, that the current ineffective leadership that we have in office now has been unable to do in eight years. Meanwhile, Woods has criticized Barge for focusing too much on testing when he was in office. The Democratic side has more candidates making a runoff likely. James Morrow, a Clayton County PE teacher, says he wants to improve literacy rates and strengthen discipline policies. Another candidate, Curry Hitchens, started out as a teacher. Then she became an attorney who represented students in discipline hearings. She says schools often don't have what they need to help kids who struggle. I want to make sure that schools and teachers get the resources they need to make their schools trauma-informed schools, to make their schools fight against racism, to help their students become excellent, become what they want to be as adults. Former state representative Alicia Thomas-Searcy is touting her experience running a charter school network as she tries to become the state's top educator. Here's what she said at a recent debate. I am a former superintendent who has led schools before. I've hired principals. I've turned around our teacher retention rate and I've turned around schools. And Cobb County School Board member Jaha Howard will also run on the Democratic ticket. He's gained attention for speaking out at board meetings about racial inequity. He's also been criticized by fellow Democrats for disparaging the LGBTQ community on social media years ago. If that race goes into a runoff, it will take place June 21st. Martha Dalton, WABE News. And two down-ballot races on Georgia's primary ballots may seem obscure, but those elected officials can have an effect on y'all's household expenses meaning your light bill. Molly Samuel has more on the Public Service Commission. The Georgia PSC regulates natural gas companies, landline telephones, and Georgia Power. The commissioners have say over Georgia Power electricity rates and also how that electricity is generated, whether it's coal, gas, nuclear, or renewables like solar. They also oversee construction at Plant Vogel, the only nuclear power construction project in the country. While commissioners have to live in a given district, the races are all statewide, meaning no matter where you live, you'll see two PSC races on the ballot. Molly Samuel, WABE News. Solid reporting there from our WABE newsroom and also from our WABE digital team. There's an online voter resource. Just go to WABE dot org slash candidates. Again, it's W-A-B-E dot org slash candidates. And a programming note, join W-A-B-E for a live Georgia primary election special tomorrow night at 8 p.m. We'll have live election results as well as reports from our W-A-B-E team of reporters. I'll be joined by veteran politics journalist Dennis O'Hara and other special guests. That's tomorrow night at 8 p.m. here on W-A-B-E and streaming live at W-A-B-E dot org. More Politics talk coming up with Fred Hicks because we know how much y'all love him. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, primary elections tomorrow. And if you're tired of all the campaign ads, well, my apologies ahead of this. Small business owners like me worried about layoffs. I didn't care about the politics. I was going to do what's right. We chose freedom over government lockdowns, and you stood with me. And you know what? We are right. Illegals flooding our border. Skyrocketing gas prices crippling inflation, the brink of war, 
Folks, that all started right here when Brian Kemp sold us out and allowed radicals to steal the election. Kemp is just another establishment politician who fought Trump. Enough is enough. When I didn't win the governor's race, not getting the job didn't exempt me from the work. And so I didn't quit. I got back to work, paid off the medical debt of 68,000 Georgians, helping small businesses stay alive, making sure they had the financing they needed. And that's the reason I'm here, just to see how this is working, what is going on, how you're getting funding, and just what's happening. We put people in office that doesn't seem to care about this country anymore. And I said, you know, if I can change it and I just sit back and do nothing, what kind of man will I be? But right now, I know I can change something. So in just a year in the Senate, did I think I could fix Washington? Of course not. But every day, I focused on what I could do for our state, creating jobs, fixing infrastructure, expanding health care. Yes, Georgia's primary elections are being touted as key come November as both Democrats and Republicans need these wins in order to control, especially the U.S. Senate. Also here, depending on the region, for example, in Cobb County, voters will decide if three new cities will be formed. That would be the city of East Cobb, Lost Mountain, and Vinings here in Atlanta. It's time to approve or not another T-SPLOS to the amount of a $750 million infrastructure package. You name it, it's on the ballot. Meanwhile, early voting turnout has posters and analysts speculating. Let's ask one. Joining me now is Atlanta-based strategist and campaign consultant, also lover of dogs, Fred Hicks. Welcome. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be here. Oh, wow. Lots to get to. But first, let's look at what's at stake for both of the major parties here from a national perspective. Let's start with the Democrats here. Of course, you know, even trying to hold a slight majority in the U.S. Senate hasn't technically helped them that much, but they still want to hold on to it. Yeah, you know, the U.S. Senate is a very interesting uh, race. You know, in 2020, there were about we saw about a billion dollars being spent uh, or that was spent to influence the outcome of that election. And you ended up with two Democrats, including the first ever African-American to represent Georgia in the Senate and the first ever Jewish American Mm -hmm. to represent Georgia in the Senate. Um, And we expect to see something very similar again, because for your listeners, just as a reminder, uh, right now the Senate is at a 50-50 deadlock. And so you have any defection along the way uh, Kristen Cinema, Joe Manchin, or anything mm-hmm. like that, then that, that alters the balance. And so you're going to see a ton of money being spent again once we get over tomorrow. So tomorrow's not the end for everyone who's getting text messages and calls and mail and all of that. You might have a little bit of reprieve, although I remind you there's a June 21st runoff. Mm-hmm. But that race for November is really significant because much like 2020, Georgia is going to determine the direction of the country. Mm-hmm. And for the Republicans, obviously, they're hoping to have pick up, if possible, pick up that key Senate seat here in Georgia. What are you hearing from that side? How much money is being spent? Same amount? Well, you know, the the money that's going to be spent in for November is going to be tremendous. Um, there hasn't been as much money in the primary because Herschel Walker, with Trump's blessing, has led in all the polls by a significant margin, somewhere between 60 and 75 percent of the Republican voters polled, depending on the poll and when, um, said they were voting for Herschel Walker. So that's been kind of a given uh, to check that box. And so it's going to be really interesting to see if that holds to see Georgia of all places in the country to have a runoff between two black men Mm -hmm. uh, for the U.S. Senate, one on the Democratic side, one on the Republican side. And for someone like me, that's really interesting because it eliminates race, which is generally a factor in Mm -hmm. politics, period, right? Race, identity, politics, all those kinds of things. You have two straight black men, um, you know, running. And so that race, probably more than any other race on on the ballot, will tell us exactly where Georgia is in terms of party. What type of black man did you say? What I want to make sure I heard you. What did you say? Well, so two, so I said two straight um, Just check black, it. black men. And the reason why I mentioned you that mean is like because... straight up black? Or what were you talking about, Fred? I need you to <laughs> clarify because <laughs> well, really, I'll get the emails and I'm like, look, Okay, well, what you I'm, glad you said that. I'm glad you said that. Yeah. So, you know, from in data land, you always try to do what we call controlling for all the potential variables, right? And so when you control for variables, what that means is you're trying to look for a similar matchup so you can distill or take away any other explanation for anything. And so in politics today, particularly today in 2022, we see Republicans hammering away on traditional family values, hammering away on transgender rights, hammering away on all these types of things. And then you see Democrats defending that. And so 
in this case, in this race, you have two men where, you know, two men who are uh, sort of come from sort of traditional backgrounds, right? So Reverend Warnock, who's a, who's a reverend, a pastor, and you have Herschel Walker, who's a football player. And so you have two black men who are from rural Georgia by birth, right? Mm-hmm. Neither are from metro Atlanta. So you take away geography. You take away, you have Herschel Walker. Who's in, other words, you're talking about, in other words, my two cis black men, what you talking about? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's all you had to say. Okay. Well, let's say that. <laughs> and so it's going to be so that that's going to tell us a lot about where I think it's going to tell us everything about where Georgia is as a party or bipartisan. Uh, well, not bipartisan, but uh, in terms of partisanship, gotcha. because all the other factors will be mitigated and you're just dealing with Democrat or Republican. And what does it say that let's start with Herschel Walker? Not did he do any debates? Correct me if I'm wrong. Did he? I don't believe he did any. And I don't think he's going to be able to get away with that in November. Remember, David Perdue refused to to uh, debate John Ossoff, and he mm-hmm. paid a price for that at the polls. So Herschel Walker, at some point in time, is going to have to speak to voters in a contested environment. So you, and like everybody else, have said, look, it, it's, a, it's a foregone conclusion that it is going to be Herschel Walker and Senator Warnock. You're not anticipating any surprises I'm not, I know how you feel about polls, but the polls pretty much indicate well, that. I, I, here's the thing. I'm not anti-poll. I just know sometimes they can be wrong. But this is <laughs> this has really been kind of, yeah, it's been. But It's, it's been pretty dull. Yeah. Well, let's, well, then, because you mentioned the Trump factor here for Herschel Walker. But it appears the Trump factor is not working for David Perdue. It appears. Yes, no. Absolutely. Correct. It does seem that way. Um, and what's been interesting about that, Rose, is that the for Herschel Walker, he's in a sort of an open environment, meaning that he's not running against an incumbent senator in the primary. Mm-hmm. David Perdue is running against an incumbent governor in the primary. And I think as we've talked about the last couple of times I've been on, what makes Brian Kemp very interesting, and I think they've run a brilliant campaign for the primary, is that they have been able to successfully shift people's focus from the national politics and the national narrative to Georgia first. And in so doing, because he is in an executive position, unlike J.D. Vance at Pennsylvania, who's running for a legislative spot or mm-hmm. some of the other seats, he's been able to use his office through the leadership committees and all of the other funding mechanisms that, that, are, that are available to him to pass legislation and to trumpet his successes mm-hmm. to the Republican um, to the Republican base. And so it's been very interesting. So, so, so for David Perdue, um, you're taking a national narrative and competing and putting it up against a state narrative. And it appears that the state narrative is going to trump, pun intended, mm-hmm. uh, the national narrative. Which is and, which is counter to what's been happening perhaps in some other states. Well, again, in the other yeah. states, you're talking about legislative positions mm-hmm. and things of that nature, not really an executive position. Um, for any other states that where you have something like that happening, um, I think I think Brian Kemp has has laid out a, a playbook uh, for other places. But again, you don't really have Donald Trump going after other sitting incumbent Republican governors. Brian Kemp is at the center of his ire, and so that's kind of a unique situation. Um, and it's really interesting because, as I mentioned, that the Senate race will determine the, the direction of, and, and November will, will determine the direction of the country. This primary race, we talked about this in January, this primary in Georgia will really determine the direction of Trumpism. And Donald Trump has a lot on the line um, in terms of his continued influence in the party, his ability to run again in 24. And that's why you see him doing things like endorsing three uh, Republicans and Loudermilk and others who really don't even have an opponent mm-hmm. so that he can, tr- he can trump it. Um, his success rate because he's going to lose the big one. It looks like he's going to lose his Purdue Kemp one. As you and potentially heard, this highest Raffensburger. As well, speaking of, of Raffensburger, and as you heard earlier from our from the baby's newsroom, Emil Moffitt, you look at the fact that Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensburger, although he has maintained that the 2020 presidential election was not fraudulent, it was not stolen, it was not given to Democrats here in Georgia, but he's also made. Democrat candidate Stacey Abrams, his target as well. There's a strategy in there as well, because even if he doesn't right now have the support of Trump folks, he's saying, but look, I'm still against Trace. I'm still against Stacey Abrams, everybody. He's which a lot of the Republicans have been doing. Does that still is that been effective? 
Uh, you know, what's been interesting is I do think it's been effective to some extent with Republican primary voters, but it has not been a deterrent to Democrats who want to make sure that Jody Heiss is not the Secretary of State. Um, and so you've seen, and I think we'll talk about, over 30,000 people who voted Democrat in 2020 vote Republican this year in early voting, and that primarily around the governor's race and the Secretary of State's race. Let's talk about that. That's it's not unusual, but that number seems unusual for ahead of a primary. It is. I mean, you might see a thousand or two thousand, maybe even five thousand people across the state in any given election who are Democrats crossing over to vote for Republicans. Um, and sometimes you'll see it the other way. Uh, probably the most famous example that we have in Metro Atlanta was when Republicans in DeKalb County crossed over to vote against Cynthia McKinney mm-hmm. several years ago. Um, that's probably the biggest and most famous example. But this right here certainly feels unprecedented. Um, you're talking about more than 30,000 uh, people who voted Democrat in 2020, in the 2020 primary, mm-hmm. across the state who have crossed over to vote in the Republican primary. Um, I did a little, I, I looked a little bit at the counties mm-hmm. where we see this most prevalent, right? And Fulton County leads the way, 44, almost 4,400 uh, people fall into that category, followed by Cobb with about 2,600, and DeKalb with about 2,500, and, and Gwinnett with uh, a little bit more than 1,700. And so with Fulton County leading the way with this, you gotta remember, right? And mm-hmm. remind all the listeners, Fulton County has been at the center of the Stop the Still movement. Fulton County has been at the center of SB 202 and around election reform. Um, and, and it's the place where Donald Trump and uh, and his his cronies, so to speak, or his supporters, I shouldn't use the word cronies, his supporters were out there heavily saying that Fulton County um, is where the cheating took place. And so you've seen almost 4,400 Democrats in Fulton County cross over to, to vote. And again, we assume since they voted in the Democratic primary, it means they had a chance to vote for Trump in 2020. They had a chance to vote for David Perdue in 2020. They had a chance to vote Republican in 2020. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They voted Democrat. And now they're voting in the Republican primary. That's significant. And I think uh, when we look at the overall impact, uh, the 32,000 or so people who crossed over, that really represents about 7% of of all the votes that were cast in the Republican primary during early voting. That's 7% of that. If that falls behind Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, Mm -hmm. that completely shifts the election. So instead of a runoff, you're talking about Brian Kemp running free and clear, so to speak. And and instead of Jody Heiss winning, you're talking about 7 percentage points that, that are uh, that uh, that Ra- Brad Raffensperger was able to bank outside of just Republican voters. So to your question, mm-hmm. not only does it not seem to the Raffensperger position, this position not seem to really nah, impact um, Republicans, it has not been a deterrent because Democrats and Democrats I talk to, um, and most of us Democrats we talk to, we hear that that the stop the still has to be stopped, and they'll go back home and vote vote. Democrat in November, November, but they have to stop. They have to stop Donald Trump now. Wow, and this is sometimes called what party rating. Is that is this a form of that, or is this something totally different? Well, that implies that there's a coordinated effort, right? And we 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 saw something like that in Virginia. <laughs> okay, uh, so a, all right, so this well, wasn't well, a coordinated. So it wasn't a coordinated effort, but it was a wave. It's a movement. It was, it was a wave and it was inspired. And we, you know, we yeah. saw this a little bit in 2020. Again, this is the danger of Trumpism. So while Donald Trump and Trumpism, while it increases or spikes turnout on the Republican side, mm-hmm. it also inspires and spikes turnout on the Democratic side. And now we're seeing that Democratic voters would go to great lengths to to try to stop that, stop him. And so, you know, it's a double-edged sword. But the rating thing, to your point, that we did see that in mm-hmm. Virginia a few years ago, I think it was the Eric Cantor race, where there was a coordinated effort. But this is organic and inspired. People are genuinely afraid. Let's talk about then about the Democratic side of the Secretary of State's office. You uh, all along have been saying that you felt that B. Wynn was the front runner. She has raised a lot of money more than anybody else. It, could this head to a runoff, though? And if so, who would it be? Well, that's the interesting thing. When you talk about the 30-plus thousand people, who Democrats, who voted Republican instead of Democrat, that has serious implications for the other statewide elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a 30,000-vote swing would certainly make the difference in the SOS race between a runoff and and someone winning outright. The same thing, I know you all did the lead-up. We're talking about uh, the secretary, uh, superintendent of schools race, mm-hmm. and it was something like AG. And then the other thing I want to remind you is that 
county commission races are on the ballot this year, mm-hmm. and those are partisan. And, and so you think they about are, this. And they are messy, especially here in Fulton and County. The, Absolutely. And so when someone pulls a Republican ballot, they can't then in turn vote Democrat down the line. You have to you have to go all the way down. So in that commission chairs race, right, in Fulton County between Rob Pitts and Sonia um, uh, and, and Sonia, that is Sonia Russell. Sonia Russell. Thank you. That's forty four hundred votes that's, that, that are not you know, Democratic votes that are not being cast in that election. That changes things significantly. Right. So both at the statewide races and at the local races, particularly in these the metro counties where we see the bulk of the people crossing over again, being Cobb, Fulton Cobb, um, DeKalb doesn't have a whole lot going on um, in that respect. It has a little bit, but not as much as the other two counties. But it's um, it, it has serious implications on the Democratic side. The voice you hear is Atlanta based strategist and campaign consultant Fred Hicks ahead of tomorrow's primary elections we have lots more to get to fred hang with me we're going to take a break on the other side of this we'll talk about the race attorney general and we'll also look at some other key races as well as we'll get fred's take on um whose message has been stronger and whose message has been quote i'm quoting this from someone whack i just just quote And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott, and I'm joined by Atlanta-based strategist and campaign consultant Fred Hicks as we give a little bit of a preview for tomorrow's primary elections. Uh, Fred, stop shuffling papers. You've done this long enough. No, stop making noise when I'm talking. Brother, come on. (laughs) I want to talk about some specific uh, congressional districts here. Let's start with the six where Jake Evans says he has the support of not only Donald Trump, but Junior as well, too. How do you see this shaping? Yeah, you know, that race really seems like it's coming down to Jake Evans and Dr. Rich McCormick. Rich McCormick is who Carolyn Bordeaux defeated. You mentioned at the top of the show that uh, the race between Carolyn Bordeaux and Lucy McBath. And so Dr. McCormick is one who's been in Congress before. Jake is a, uh, is many consider to be the future of the party. His father was Randy Evans, who was an ambassador under Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe it was to the UN. Well, no, Luxembourg. No, yeah. Luxembourg. And um, go ahead. ahead. No, go ahead and finish. I was going to correct you on something, but go ahead. Gotcha. Okay. So it's very, it's it's a very interesting, um, it's a very interesting head-to-head matchup. I do think in that district, given how it was redrawn, that Donald Trump's endorsement is is going to be very helpful to Jake. Um, and then of course, again, Jake, uh, he's, he worked on the Ethics Commission and a couple other places, so he has a lot of deep relationships. And um, in a race like this, where you have someone who's both people are are, are Trump supporters Mm -hmm. to have the endorsement of Donald Trump in that primary for someone who's young, who's energetic, who's been involved in the fight on the Republican side. I think it gives Jake a really solid advantage. And very interesting because we used to have Jake on this program uh, a lot of times. He always touted that there needed to be a new Republican Party. And we got it on tape, Jake Evans and Jake supporters. So don't send me an email. But talking about how the Republican Party had to change its, quote, old time conservative views. And, and, and now we ha- we have this so It's quite interesting. Let's then go over to that newly redrawn, that seventh congressional district, as you heard from our WAB reporters and talking about Carolyn Bardot and Lucy McBath. At first, it seemed like it was going to be OK, but it's gotten a little a tinge of I don't want to call it nastiness, maybe haterness coming out? <laughs> uh, I think that started out, it started out that way. I, it was always trending uh, from the initial spark, right? Um, and Congresswoman Bordeaux's initial comments once uh, Congresswoman McBath made the decision to jump over there. And it's been really interesting. This district is largely contained within Gwinnett County. Mm-hmm. And so it looks to me, and I haven't, uh, I, don't, I don't have a scoreboard on my wall here, but it looks like most of the Gwinnett County officials have lined up behind Bordeaux. Um, and not behind McBath. Mm-hmm. And that's no quote unquote shade to McBath's service, but Bordeaux has been there, been in the fight. She came within a few hundred votes of winning um, in 2018 and then came back and won in 2020. And so it's very, it's very interesting to see how that one is shaping up uh, because as you mentioned, you have a third candidate in Donna McLeod that, uh, that has the potential of going into, going into a runoff. 
um, which again, remind all the listeners, the runoff is June 21st, so mm-hmm. voting will start again, start, start again right away. But that's going to be a very interesting one to watch because uh, you have for a lot of reasons, mm-hmm. a lot of reasons here. I want to move over to the 13th with longtime Congressman David Scott, no relation, folks, mm-hmm. at all. Um, and now has a key opponent in Vincent Fort. How do you see this shaping? I remember now back in 2018, Congressman Scott won with more than nearly 77 percent of the vote. Well, and don't forget Mark Baker from the city of South Fulton who's sure. running in that race, too. And to the naked eye, and I just want to make sure people know I have no involvement in that race. Uh, just to the naked eye, when I'm moving around, it looks to me like Baker's running a pretty strong campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, you know, in 2018, Congressman Scott did win with the overwhelming majority. In 2020, when Keisha Waits, who's now on the city council, ran against them, mm-hmm. she almost pulled him into a runoff. Mm-hmm. She just missed it by a couple of points. So we saw a significant erosion, so to speak, of vote share for for the congressman from 2018 to 2020. And so now he has two opponents. And you mentioned Vincent Ford, former state senator, mayoral candidate, and you have Mark ba- Mark um, Mark Baker. Uh, so this will be an interesting one. I think that that Congressman Scott will prevail, but it's going to give us a real test of what it, of what his strength is. And if he barely makes it across the line, then you can bet your bottom dollar that there are going to be some very formidable opponents mm-hmm. in 2024 let's, when uh, Democrats are expected to be in the minority. And let's talk about the the Republican in the fourth congressional district host that is held by Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, need I say more? How do you see this? Well, you know, there's a lot of controversy around her, and it started with redistricting, so it's clear. Yeah, a little bit of controversy on, here and there. Man. A little bit, a little bit, you know. She, the, she said a couple of things. She know, said that, more than a couple of things, but come on. But, you know, what's interesting is that they drew her into a significant portion of her district into Cobb County, which, as we all remember from 2020, mm-hmm. flipped. So you have a Democratic sheriff, district attorney, county uh, commission chair, and all of that. And so... Um, and it made it a little bit less Republican. And I think that that was at the will, of course, of Republicans who control the redistricting process. So it's going to be really fascinating to see what happens with that. I, I do think, I, I think she will emerge, but I don't feel very solid in that position. And I will say on the Democratic side, people have put a lot of money um, into the Democratic candidates, even though it's, a, it's still a fairly safe Republican mm-hmm. seat. But there's a lot of uh, things there. And I think that the will of the institutional Republicans in Georgia, power brokers, um, is that she would be gone. She's a bad look for the party. She's a bad look for the country. Okay. Let's let's talk about one race that we, we sort of haven't really hit on, and that is the lieutenant governor. We got a lot of folks on the Democratic side running. I do mean a lot of folks. Um, how do you see the shape? Some will say, oh, it's going to go to a runoff, but, you know, you got some familiar names in there that folks know. You know, Charlie Bailey, who's been sort of the front runner, so to speak. Kwanzaa Hall, former con- uh, congressman and city hall uh, council person. You know, lots of names here. Uh, this is bound for runoff. Yes. Well, that's that's the perfect example of where this 30,000 vote crossover from Democratic from Democrats to the Republican Party will impact a race. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a race where you have several candidates, uh, probably equal name ID and various claims to fame. Uh, we talk about losing 30,000 people out of your primary. That almost assures that um, that that will go into a runoff. And I want to clarify something for the listeners. This is 30,000. This 30 plus thousand vote count. Um, the number is shifting a little bit. It'll go up as ballots are still being counted or mm-hmm. are coming in from absentee votes um, or vote by mail. But I anticipate or I expect that that number is going to significantly increase tomorrow. I think when it's all said and done, and it'll take us about a week or so, so you got to have me back on, mm-hmm. uh, we'll probably have somewhere close to 70,000 or more people who were 2020 Democratic, Democrats cross over and vote in, Republican thing, in the Republican uh, primary. So if you're talking about losing 70,000 votes, that is almost assuredly going to throw that LG race into on the Democratic, Democratic side into a runoff. Um, and then also... Uh, and I think it hurts. And it's interesting because so many of those votes are coming from Fulton County, mm-hmm. where both Kwanzaa Hall and Charlie Bailey live, right? And so, and, and where they serve, Charlie Bailey in the district attorney's office, uh, Kwanzaa Hall, as you mentioned, in Congress and, and, city, and city hall. Um, and so the, they also, they, with Cobb County being the second most, having the second most sort of quote unquote defection, so to speak, from Democratic to Republicans, uh, that's where Eric Allen lives, right? Mm-hmm. And so that impacts him. 
And of course, Derek Jackson kind of crossed these various areas. These are two of the Democratic candidates for lieutenant governor. And then, of course, in DeKalb, where Renita Shannon is, 2,500 plus votes over there or so have crossed over. So in this metro area, all of the leading candidates are deeply impacted by the crossover, which, again, I think does pretty much guarantee that that's going to go into a runoff. But I do want to go back to the secretary of state on the Democratic side for a moment, because mm-hmm. are you willing to say that because it, it appears this is just based on what you folks like you have said would be when in the lead with the. It's a front runner, so to speak. But is it possible that could go to a runoff? And if so, with whom? John Eves has been a lot of support, had a lot of push here as well as we know, a lot of folks know Michael Owens and D. Dawkins. I mean, so there's a lot of folks that have the name recognition. So you just never know when people get to, you know, the polling location. They're like, okay, what do I do here? Do I go with the familiar name that I know or do I, you know, you know this? Well, what I would say about that is, you know, the party and and, and the communities seem to have coalesced around B-Win. Um, and I will say this just for disclosure. I know all the candidates um, that you named. Well, I know them um, all, in various too. Capacities. Yeah, in various, in various <laughs> capacities. Some I consider friends. Uh, you know, John Eves was a mentor to me when I was 19 and an undergrad and things of that nature. So I know I know all of them very well. But I think that B, uh, that B win. What did he mention you in? Politics? <laughs> oh, you know, and, and, and politics and in life and all of that. You know, he was a dean. I went to Clayton State, proud right. Clayton State Laker, and uh, he was actually one of our deans at the time when I was at school, in school down there, before he entered into politics. He was an academia. Okay, that's and, enough. Uh, that's enough. All right, that's anyway, enough. Let's move that on. being said, I think that B is going to go in there as the, as the top vote-getter. We've seen you know, all the momentum behind her. She's raised a lot of money, I think about $1.4 million. Um, I will go so far as to say this, that the biggest threat to be winning outright tomorrow is the fact that the Democratic primary is going to be about two-thirds African-American. And so that's the other good question is, will you see African-Americans, particularly outside of metro Atlanta, vote for an Asian-American Well, you've um, said that before, person. and I've asked you, and I don't know you've really cleared it up. Why Why is that? Why do you think that that's an issue? Are you saying that black voters won't vote for an Asian-American candidate? Well, there's a push with the supporters of the other candidates, the African-American candidates for black voters to vote black. So that's first and foremost. So that that Ooh. is a pull there. That was a message. That was a was that was that a clear message or was that a non-distinct message? I mean, be be no be, one's gonna no be, one's gonna do a TV or radio commercial saying vote black, right? Because if you're black, but you know, I think there's there's a lot of sort of social pressure um, being applied or that was applied well, in that well, area. Well, back that up, Fred. Though. I can't let you just say that and say. I mean, can you point to some example of social pressure? Uh no, you, you know, you so that's a great question. Of course it's so, a great question. You don't have an answer this converse, Well, because it's conversational, Rose. So you're not going to see, again, you're not going to see a, a mailer. Well, actually, that's not true. So, um, you know, you see, when you see the mailers or the slates going out there, the you know, the vote black slate, right? Um, but it doesn't say collect. vote black, does it? There is, a, there is a vote black slate, yes. Who put it um, out? Out there. I don't know. The unofficial supporters for ex candidate. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Let's let's. Well, I don't. Know. I don't know who put it out. You know, I don't. I didn't print it or whatever. But you have a slate it's called the vote black slate that has the black candidates on there. You have slates that you know. You have D nine slates. Because you, you know, like well, so, I just I, I there are asked lots you. of pieces of paper floating around. Okay, that's why I asked you. That's around. why I asked you because you so, are. This is your world. So you know, when you say something, I got to yeah. ask you to you know for clarification. I'm glad you did. Okay. Well, and I'm glad you pressed the point on that. So, but I think that again, so the, that's the big question. We don't know because B B is the first, um, well, you have Sham Redding, but B is one of the first Asian Americans to really run on the Democratic side statewide. Again, you had Sham Redding um, a few years ago, I think that was 2010. And so Georgia is very different now. So there are a lot of questions. Um, you know, B is definitely progressive. She, she has the resources, she has the support. It's going to be really interesting. And the, the other question in my mind is who finishes second? Because you have John Eves, who was, again, who was a Fulton and, County And going back to my original Congress. question, do you think this could go to a runoff? Which you could have avoided okay. all that you just went through, but, you know. <laughs> Yes, I said yes. I think again, but and, and it will probably be because if B were if B were, if B was if she were African American, I, I think she went it without a runoff. She's run such a strong campaign and has so much support. So if she does not, I think that uh, and I say this for your listeners who don't know this, I'm an African American male. Um, <laughs> I think that uh, I think that that would be the main reason, the primary reason that she goes into a runoff is that uh, is that. But we'll see. We'll see. It's going to be interesting. Again, this election this year, whether it's the primary or November, this is going to give us a real barometer on where Georgia is 
um, for the next 10 years. We know where Georgia was for the last 10 years, the last 10 year cycle for redistricting. This is going to tell us where it is going Folk, forward. Folks have been saying that. Atlanta based strategist and campaign consultant Fred X, thank you so much, Fred, as always. We appreciate you taking the time, breaking down those early voting numbers as well. Thank you. Just remind people, go check your My Voter page. This is the first election since SB202 and since redistricting took place. So your your voting precinct may have changed. Just because you voted somewhere for the last 10 years does not mean that you still vote there. So go to My Voter, pa- the My Voter page at Georgia SOS site, put in your information, verify That is the one so thing that I will agree with you on. Folks need to check the <laughs> voter page. That's all I'm saying. Well, that you're the greatest you're the greatest radio hostess in, uh, in Metro Atlanta. I think we can agree on that. Now you just try and make sure I don't write you an angry post interview email (laughs) thanks Fred I appreciate you thank you take care bye y'all Apparently, this is MomoCon music. Closer Look returns here on 90.1 WABE. From Atlanta, I'm Rose Scott. After a two-year in-person hiatus, I believe, more and more of Atlanta's annual conventions and festivals, well, they're making a comeback from this pandemic-related delays. That includes MomoCon. Now, here's what organizers say. It is the city's, quote, best geek culture convention celebrating cosplay, music, animation, comics, gaming, and more. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, well, understand this. In past years, this convention has drawn more than 30,000 attendees. And guess what? It's back this Thursday. Join me now with more is the Senior Director of Media for MomoCon, Renee Cooper. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. MomoCon. Explain it to someone who's never heard of MomoCon. Okay, well, actually, there is a very good uh, new statement I have just heard. Uh, MomoCon is Atlanta's answer to Comic-Con. I also like to say it is like Atlanta's Disneyland. Um, And again, it does cover a lot of different areas of fandom. Mm -hmm. So it's not just anime. It's not just cosplay. Um, If you have almost any hobby, you can probably find it and play it at MomoCon. What is your... MomoCon wheelhouse or your your jam? What's your MomoCon jam? Oh, that's a really hard one because um, over the past couple of years since I've taken on this position with MomoCon, a lot of what I see is from the media lounge, from the media room. And so I think visually it's great. Um, I have enjoyed the musical performances mm-hmm. and I really just love talking nerdy and talking geek (laughs) talking about my favorite shows with people so the panels are are really big when anytime i can get away to go to a panel on a show or topic i'm really into that's what i love the most give me your top two in terms of shows oh that's impossible i I would not do it i would say okay i'll give you my top shows that are related to guests that we have coming through so actually right now Mm -hmm. And this may be, this is a newer one on Disney. It's Amphibia. Mm-hmm. And the voice of Goofy does a voice in this in the show. The character's name is Hot Pop. And I love the show. It is very adorable. It's very inclusive. And it uh, it's very magical. And like I said, Bill Farmer, who does the voice of one of the main characters, is mm-hmm. going to be there. So I'm excited about that. He's also voiced Goofy over the years. Yeah. Uh, which is exciting to me because I've, we've grown up with Disney. But I'm also a big Kingdom Hearts fan in terms of video games. Uh, not only do you have Goofy, you have Mickey coming. So we have Max coming, voice of Max. Mm-hmm. So if anyone was into Goof Troop back in the day, you can hear those voices. So I would say that's, I know one was a show and one was a, um, a game. Mm-hmm. My other top show right now is Young Justice. Got it. And we actually have uh, voices from Young Justice coming too. We have Phil Lamar, who's really spanned the, the spectrum of voice acting from Samurai Jack to TV earlier than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be great. What does it mean to have this big event convention in person back, having our folks be able to come in and, and experience? I mean, on we get it. We know a lot of them had to go online, but there's nothing like being in person and experiencing the panels and all the events and pageants and, and all that. Yes, it is incredibly emotional from all angles, from a a con runner side and and hearing and knowing all the work that our volunteers and directors are putting into this this year 
we are so ready to be serving this event, not only in person, but in a whole new space. Mm -hmm. So between the last event that we had in person, 2019, and now, we were supposed to, in the last couple of years, grow from the A Hall at George World Congress Center to the B Hall, Mm -hmm. which is 750,000 square feet of space. So we're not only excited to be kind of working and covering and introducing this area to people, but from a attendee side, I'm just excited to see it all unfold in person. And I know there are people who are ready for the the interactions with the guests, but also the photo opportunities mm-hmm. that are happening all around the convention, uh, the ability to have that space to 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 meet other people and to interact and engage with other people and thankfully not feel too crowded in. Mm-hmm. So well, and that's what uh, I want to talk yeah. about because we are still in a pandemic. So mm-hmm. did you all have to scale down in terms of the numbers and limiting capacity? Because, you know, you do also have to keep in mind that there needs to be some COVID safety measures. Are you all still asking people if they feel comfortable to mask, proof of vaccination? What should folks know? Of course. So all of the information is on our website. We've been considering it ever since COVID started and, um, it's actively, a lot of information is actively changing. But what we are putting into place is a mask requirement for anyone over the age of five years old. So uh, you can see everything full there. Vaccine cards and vaccinations are not required for this year. Mm-hmm. But just as everyone has been doing the best to do, follow all public health guidelines to make sure that if you don't feel well, you're doing what you need to do to uh, keep yourself and others safe. But in terms of Momocon, we are requiring masks on at all times inside of George World Congress Center. What about your volunteers and folks like you who are organizers of the event? What can, were, are you all requiring, requiring vaccination? We are not. We are having the same um, we are not requiring it across the, the board, but mm-hmm. we are requiring mask policy uh, very stringently across that. Um, I personally have done another, a couple other larger events and am excited at how well people have maintained that mask policy. Okay. And so in this particular case, we are making sure that, um, you know, if you, there's there's almost no tolerance for not wearing a mask in, mm-hmm. so, in certain spaces. Um, or in, in all of our spaces. So we are requiring that. And um, we as directors are making sure that we are looking closely and again, following those guidelines for the people who work and uh, will volunteer under us and making sure they know if there's anything that makes someone feel uncomfortable to let us know. And we're, we're watching that very closely. Something interesting that I found, you all are having a career fair at Momocon. Tell me more about that. So... Unfortunately, we have very recently, and I think this is just as of today, maybe a few hours ago, had to announce that we are not doing the career fair this year. Really? Why? However, we're looking forward to, there's always last minute changes with an event of this size. Mm-hmm. And so we don't have, um, sometimes we just have to look at the resources that we have and make sure that we're presenting the best possible event for our attendees mm-hmm. for them to take the time. The career fair would start below, before um, our on-site exhibitor hours. And so we are going to put those resources towards more of the events and industry, e- industry events and industry programming that we have during the convention times uh, starting at from Thursday afternoon and on. And we should note that this is also a huge event for folks that are in, in especially with comic books and and D and D, you know, dra- uh, dragons and dungeons and all that stuff, and folks who <laughs> like to trade and that that's a big part of this in the exhibit hall, correct? Yes. So the so the like if I want Superman dungeon. Volume <laughs> One, comic book one, I should be able to get it for like two million dollars, something like that, because that's what's going to cost if you have it. Okay, so technically you're you are mostly correct in that statement. Momo <laughs> probably the place where you'll find a Superman issue number one. Um, but what you will find is a lot of discussion possibilities about your favorite comic books. Mm-hmm. We do have comic book programming and we do have creators, writers, and artists who will be there who would love to talk to you about Superman, about their version of their own modern day heroes. Um, and there will be 
comics and uh, manga and um, books, a lot of different literature, art, fan art, and original pieces that are available for sale when you are there. And so you may find something even cooler than Superman number one, if there is anything like that. Because right, I don't even know what I just made it up. And how big is cosplay <laughs> in all of this? Because I absolutely love cosplay. I just love it. Oh, yeah. Cosplay is huge. Um it's hard to put a number on how many of our attendees or percentage of how many of our attendees come through in cosplay because it spans such a large, a, a large uh, amount of people. They are um, people who will create costumes that look authentic to the shows, and there are people who will put amazing spins on character creations mm-hmm. that they've uh, made themselves. We do highlight a lot of the cosplay because we have uh, at least but two major competitions. One is on kind of I would consider a professional expert level where you have to make at least 60% of your costume and one where you um, can make up to 60% of your costume and still compete. So we want to make sure that uh, cosplayers at all levels have a possibility to uh, present their craftsmanship. But outside of that, we have a lot of photo opportunity spaces for if you're not wanting to compete, you just want a great photo because you've been working for the last two years <laughs> on your costume and building that armor. Um, there are spaces inside and outside of the event that um, draw in crowds of uh, you know, groups of the same show for their costumes mm-hmm. or just places where individuals can uh, get a lot of photos for themselves. And finally, are you going to be in cosplay here or will we just find you doing? Because I know for some media relations folks are like, no, I have a job to do. Can't be bothered with that. I have to be professional. I have a goal uh, and I've been working on getting a very, some people call it closet cosplay. Some people, I like to say con play, like my convention play. I'm working on an Isabella costume from uh, Encanto. And it's really just a purple dress with flowers. And I wanted to be able to have something that I could walk very quickly across the convention (laughs) hall. But if someone were to see me at any age, they'd be able to recognize it. And hopefully it would entice them to uh, try their own spin or to be comfortable, but also still uh, come for the convention. Absolutely fun for all. Very diverse too. Renee Cooper is the Senior Director of Media for Momocom. taking, Taking place this Thursday through Sunday at the Georgia Royal Congress Center in downtown Atlanta. Renee, thank you so much. You all have a good con. Thank you so much. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our producer is Kevin Rinker. Daniel picked this MomoCon music. That's Daniel. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. A reminder of our special election night coverage tomorrow, tomorrow night at 8 p.m. right here on WABE. Stay tuned to WABE from Atlanta. This is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.